All right. Welcome back to Journalistic Integrity. My name is Robert Murphy, and today's episode, in my opinion, is the best episode in the short history of journalistic integrity. I've got 40 minutes with ESPN's great play-by-play broadcaster, Dan Shulman. And if for whatever reason the name doesn't ring a bell, once you hear his voice, you'll be like, oh yeah, I've heard him call a billion sports games. So he did MLB Sunday Night Baseball for many years with Joe Morgan, John Crook. Currently, he is the voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, and he does the ESPN primetime college basketball game with Jay Billis. So he was awesome. It was great talking to him. We talked some college basketball, his thoughts on UVA hoops, his recollection of calling one of the most memorable college basketball games of the past decade, Kentucky, Indiana, where Christian Watford hit that three right at the buzzer. Talk some MLB stuff, some behind-the-scenes broadcasting stuff, things that he would change in the MLB to make the game more entertaining. It was awesome. He's the man. I think uh, you guys are really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Dan Shulman. All right. Now we welcome on a very special guest. He is ESPN's primetime college basketball play-by-play broadcaster, You've seen him on Sunday Night Baseball. He's voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, and he won the 2011 National Sportscaster of the Year Award. And Dan, I was looking into that award, and it started in 1959, but there's only been 20 winners of the award. It's not one of those awards where they really try and make sure everyone gets one. There's a lot of good broadcasters that haven't got one. You hear about baseball players, the baseball's looking like a watermelon coming down the plate. In 2011, Were you kind of like that, seeing a grooved 94-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle when you were in the broadcast booth? Were you in the zone in 2011? Uh, No, I I wouldn't say so, really, Robert. I mean, it was was my first year on Sunday Night Baseball. You know, I was very – I was thrilled with where my career was at at the point, and and, but I've never thought about awards or anything like that, and I remember when I got the phone call – uh, from Dave Gorin with the, the National Sportscaster and Sports Writers Association, as it was then known, like I was stunned. I don't, I don't even think I knew I was nominated if I'm or was a finalist, if I'm remembering correctly. So really, it wasn't any much different than any other year other than it was my first year on Sunday Night Baseball. And I kind of felt like, wow, like I, I can't believe I'm doing this. You, right. you know, I can't believe I've gotten to to this place. So, but it was, it was a wonderful honor. Uh, I guess I'm the only non-American to ever win the honor. I, I, I believe. And, you know, like you did when I won, I looked at the list and you see, you know, all these unbelievable names on it. So, you know, to just even to be mentioned, just to, to be a winner alongside those guys was, was, and still is very humbling to me. Right. Yeah. It's been around for, what is that? 60 years, only, only 20 winners. So definitely a really Great class to be a part of. So congratulations on that. And first, not American to win that. So representing Canada very well. Um, So let's start with a couple of broadcasting things. And I want to get into some college basketball and baseball. But obviously, the past year or so, you've been broadcasting Toronto Blue Jays games from the studio, not at the field. And uh, I think you've recently, in the past couple of weeks, you guys have been back um, on site. 
But we see in examples, John Sterling, the great broadcaster for the Yankees, he saw um, there's he was broadcasting one from the studio or from Yankee Stadium when it was an away game, and they showed a replay of a home run, and he thought it was live. That's I don't blame him for that. I can assume, I can see that happening a lot. It, has that been pretty difficult for you to call these games uh, not on site? Yeah, like everybody else, it's been challenging. I mean, it beats not working, so... You know, last year uh, was when I started it and did all uh, I did all 60 Blue Jays games from a studio in Toronto. And there are some things uh, you just can't see as well. You know, like if a runner's trying to steal a base, you don't always see that it's on a different monitor. You're looking at a program monitor and over here is what's called the all nine monitor. Whereas if you're at the ballpark and you know the guy at first might steal, you're just looking out at the field. It's easy. Um, you know, does, uh, if there are runners at first and second and somebody hits one into the left center field gap, Will the runner from first try to score? That's a tricky play too. So there are little things, but you learn you learn the tricks as you go along. But I still get caught every couple of games. Something will happen, and I and I'll say on the air, I'll say, you know, uh, sorry I wasn't able to see that. Um, you know, thanks for putting up with me or whatever I say. <laughs> and and uh, it has been challenging. Did a lot of basketball uh, remotely for ESPN during the winter as well, and and doing some baseball remotely for ESPN now, but. For Blue Jays home games, very, 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 very happy to be back in the ballpark. It, it right. is an enormous difference. Um, and like all game announcers, we all understand the whys and the what's in the house and, you know, why we're doing this. But it, it's it's night and day being in the ballpark versus calling it off a monitor. And does the production crew, does anything change when you're from a studio? Are they in your ear a little bit more to, to give you more information on the side or is everything else about the same? It's not that they're in my ear anymore. So what there is, let's say I'm doing a Blue Jays Royals game from Kansas City. Kansas, the the uh, broadcast crew in Kansas City is providing us with a couple of extra camera feeds. One's called an all nine, which is like a camera high above home plate shooting down onto the field. So you can see if the infield is in or if the shift is on. Uh, and generally we get bullpen cameras as well. So we can see if the Blue Jays get somebody up in the bullpen. Then when the Royals come to Toronto, our crew does the same thing for them. It's a reciprocal right. agreement. So um, that's the kind of thing that's happening. But uh, our broadcast crew, when we're doing games remotely, our broad, our producer and director, they're sitting in the same building I'm sitting in. So they're not seeing anything I'm not seeing. Right. So, um, you know, we have ramped up some things like ideally, you know, if I'm in Kansas City, and is it a hit or is it an error? I can hear the PA announce the um, not the PA announce the the official score. I can hear him or her say hit or error. Some ballparks we've been able now to get a direct line from them to our statistician in Toronto. Some ballparks we can't. It's a little bit hit and miss. So, you know, everybody's trying whatever way they can to get the information. Uh, you can get a lot of it online right now, but mm -hmm. um, still, it's a little bit slower sometimes. So. Everybody's doing the best they can, but again, every broadcaster wants to get back into the ballpark. Right, right. That's what it sounds like. Most broadcasters really happy to get back on site. Um, let's talk a little college basketball. And one of the most memorable games for me in the um, 2010s, that decade, was the Kentucky versus Indiana game, which you called. And it was the game where Indiana, Christian Watford, hits the game-winning three. I think they are unranked against the number one ranked Kentucky Wildcats. One of the craziest environments I've ever seen and the amount of time it went from the buzzer beater to the court being filled was like six seconds from the ball going through the net to that. It was unbelievable. Was that one of the best environments for a college basketball game that, that you've been to? Yeah, usually if I get asked, what's your most memorable college basketball game, I usually pick that one. And I, I've been very lucky. I've done a ton of Duke, North Carolina games and I've been to 
you know, Kansas and Michigan State and, and, and so many great places. But that my favorite college basketball game is always when Goliath comes into David's house and David tries to pull off the upset. And right. Kentucky was Goliath that year, right? I mean, with yeah. uh, Anthony Davis and, and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, and they were number one and, and undefeated. It was early in the year. I think Indiana was undefeated, too, but they hadn't played anybody. And like you said, they weren't ranked. It was early in Tom Crean's tenure, and they, they were just building at the time. And it was a great game. And, and whenever I get asked about great college basketball environments, not to answer a question you didn't ask, but I always say Kansas, Duke. I love Purdue. Purdue's my sneaky one that I uh, put in there at the end. But I, I always say Assembly Hall in Bloomington with the caveat being if Indiana's good. If Indiana's right. good, that place rocks like no other place in the country. If Indiana's not good, they get a little grumpy. And, and <laughs> I understand it. Indiana's supposed to be good. Um, but the place was rocking that day and it was the absolute best kind of game. I think they were down two. So it wasn't like it was to break a tie or create a tie. There were only two options, win and lose. Right. And Watford gets the shot off and it, it was like right out of a Hoosiers movie or something like the yeah. balls in the air as the horn goes off, as the light goes. And it, it was fantastic. And I, I just got lucky too. It's funny. You know, if his name had been Murphy, like, uh, you know, Murphy for the win doesn't sound as good as Watford for the win, just because it was alliteration with W's right, there. So, right. you know, it, it was just, and, and it's not like I had thought of Watford for the win. I had no idea who was going to take the shot or anything like that. So um, it, it's a very, it's a moment I think of very fondly. It's one of the reasons I love college basketball so much is every place has a different environment and the underdog can pull off the upset. Um, and that day it, it happened. And, and I remember the um, later on in the season, we had another Indiana game and I was talking to a Christian Watford to shoot around. And I said, you mind if I take a picture with you? I said, I know that shot was pretty big for you. I said, it was kind of fun for me too. So, <laughs> got, <laughs> and I actually saw last month some, I don't know where that, where it's out of, but there are t-shirts like some companies selling Watford for the win t-shirts. I, wow. uh, I haven't gotten a phone call asking me if that's okay, but I guess it's not my uh, intellectual property. So yeah, I might have to well. send them a, a cease and desist if they have any, yeah. <laughs> any anything related to Dan Schulman on, on those uh, t-shirts. Yeah. So um, a question I had when you're calling those big moments, is it nerve wracking? Because now in a day where you've got internet and these clips and these games live forever, your voice and your call on these really big moments is going to go on for, you know, however long people still care about the game of basketball, are those the most nerve wracking moments or do you go into it now, you know, experience and you're not really thinking about it? Uh, it is a little bit nerve wracking. I mean, like you said, I've done it a long time. And, and one of the good things about doing it a long time is you've made mistakes before. So like, I, I, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. I was calling, I, I did Olympic basketball up here in Canada and I was doing the USA France game, not the gold medal game, the first game. Um, and uh, was it that game? It was, it was Nicholas Batum blocked a shot. Maybe it wasn't, yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't against the US, but it was a France Serbia. game. Yeah. Uh, maybe yes, you're right. Exactly right. Thank yeah. you. You've got a better memory than me. It was France, Serbia. Uh, and Nicholas Batum blocked a shot to save the game. Right. Um, no, it was Slovenia. That's who it was. Oh, it was yeah, France, yeah. Slovenia. Slovenia. Nicholas right. Batum blocked a shot by a Slovenian player to, to save the game and to get them into the gold medal game against the United States. That's what it was. And again, I'm calling it off a monitor. I did those games from Toronto. And Rudy Gobert is on the floor for France. And Rudy Gobert is three-time NBA defensive player of the year, great shot blocker. And in the moment, I see the Slovenian player go in for a layup. And it, it's unbelievable block at the glass with half a second left. And right away I go, 
blocked by Gobert. And as soon as I said it, I went, I don't think that's Gobert in my head. I said, I don't, but what are you going to (laughs) do? And it was, it was Batum. And I corrected it a couple of seconds later, but yeah, that one ate me up pretty good. You know, I've been doing this 27 years and stuff like that still happens. And, and, you you know, I, I still learn from it. And, And I walked out of that game saying, okay, like I, I understand why I thought it was Gobert because that's what Rudy Gobert does, right? But uh, right. but in the moment I walked out of there saying, "All right, next time, just say blocked, just say blocked." That's right. all you have to say. And then a second later, or half a second later, you can say who it was. Um, so yeah, it, it it's not nerve wracking in the moment, but I've had a few of those where you go, "Oh man, I wish I hadn't done that." But um, it's it's live TV without a script and and nobody's telling us what to say and and nobody's perfect. I I I've met a lot of great 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 broadcasters. I haven't met a perfect one yet. Right. And I think the ones who you know kind of own up to their mistakes, which I try to do, are are uh, are, are doing it the right way. Right. And to be fair to you on that call, Batum's arms and his length is incredible. On that shot, he was all the way reached out. And so just yeah. watching, you would have thought the only person that has that type of reach would be Gobert. Um, let's go to another one of your moments, college basketball. I think this is in 2010, but, uh, there's a clip on YouTube where Kyle Singler and the ACC tournament is diving for a loose ball and hits you yeah. right, right on. And it was really funny. You're calling it with Dickie V and, uh, and so he had like 45 seconds while your headset was knocked off and you're getting everything back on. Um, he was like, he was like a lost puppy. He was looking for his play-by-play guy, his captain. Uh, that was yeah. really funny to watch, but. When Kyle Singler hit you and you got up kind of unscathed, were you like, okay, there's no way this guy can make the NBA if he can't, if he can't do some damage to me running full speed into me? <laughs> well, I think, you know, you started off by asking me about winning the, uh, the play-by-play announcer of the, of the year award in 2011. I think the reason I won it is in 2010, Singler rang me over and the world heard 45 seconds of Dick Vitale trying to do play-by-play. <laughs> and I think that made ESPN say, boy, we better hang on to this guy because look what happens when he gets knocked off his headset. But it, it was one of those moments. It's like when you're at a baseball game and somebody hits a foul ball and you're watching the ball and then you're saying, man, that ball's coming right at me. Yeah. And that's what it was like. A shot went up and there was a long rebound and here comes Singler. And for a half a second, I'm just calling the play. And then he jumps. And there was just a split second where I went, he's going to land right on top of me. And he did. I mean, he he smoked me. Like, you can't he, – he squared me up good, which is great because I had Vital on one side and our statistician, Marty Aronoff, who was in his 70s then on the other side. Ooh, yeah. And I'd rather them hit me than them. But if you want – so he lands on me and my chair breaks. So – you know, I'm a pretty big guy and he's a pretty big guy. You had over 400 pounds of human being on one chair and the chair goes down. My headset gets knocked off. My drink gets knocked. And the crazy part was he saved the ball. The ball's still live. Yep. So he just kind of uses me to like push off and stand <laughs> up and he jumps back over the table and gets back onto the court. So it all happened so fast. Like it took me a minute to tell the story, but it all happened in a second, obviously. And the first thing I was happy about was nothing hurt. I, I was okay. Right. And then I went looking for my headset, which was broken. And at that point, I didn't know there was nothing for me to do. Right. <laughs> uh, I just I just stood around. And, and then at the next whistle, we always have a spare headset. And our our uh, one of our engineers ran down and helped me out and and put it back on. But um, it, it it was it was fun. Like it's one of those things where in the moment you're like, oh man, I, I wish that hadn't happened. But it, I get asked about it. It's lived on for a long time. And and. Uh, you know, if I'd broken my wrist or something, I probably wouldn't remember it as, as fondly. But fortunately, I didn't get hurt at all. 
Yeah, it was a great job by you. And it reminds me of like a quarterback when they're waiting for the receiver to get open, but there's a free rusher coming right at them and they got to wait till the last second to throw it and then they get hit. You're calling the play until the last second until Singler made impact on you. So yeah. it, was, it was an athletic play. I don't know if they teach that in broadcasting school or, or coming <laughs> they, up through the ranks, but uh, no, they, they don't. I, I I just I tried to keep my feet set to, to draw the charge. That's all I care. Dicky V wanted you to get the charge. He he yeah. said the word charge about twenty times during that, yeah. but uh, yeah. he he wanted that. So we mentioned earlier you're from you're Canadian and. Obviously, the Raptors won the uh, NBA championship in 2019. It was the first championship for um, a team from Canada in the NBA. They came in uh, 1995. But there's also been a lot more players from Canada playing in the NBA. We've got R.J. Barrett, Jamal Murray, uh, Lou Dort, Wiggins, a lot of guys. And it seems like it's growing a little bit. Do you get that sense being in Toronto and Canada that it's growing and did the Raptors championship kind of change the perception of basketball in Canada kind of not chipping away at hockey, but kind of elevating it into, uh, you know, what younger players want to play? Yes, it is definitely growing. It is growing exponentially. It is a, a huge, uh, a hugely popular sport in Canada. Um, I think the championship may have cemented it, but the championship didn't start it. It started before. So okay. when the Raptors and the Grizzlies, who didn't last that long, but when the Raptors and the Grizzlies came in in 95, it definitely started. Um, Steve Nash being Canadian was a big, big part of it. You know, in, in the past, Canadians, there would be two or three guys in the NBA, but, you know, usually they were bench players. You know, we'd have some good college players, but, um, you know, that when... Steve Nash became a hero to a lot of young Canadian kids. And then Vince Carter, obviously he's not Canadian, but he played for the Raptors. And Vince Carter for a few years was the number one draw in the NBA. You know, half man, half amazing, winning the dunk contest, right. uh, everything. So I, I think that's what, I think Vince Carter really took it over the top. Um, and, and all the guys who were playing, who are playing in the NBA now, they were kids when Vince Carter was playing. So um, I think Vince was a huge part of it. Um, and, and the, you know, for it, it, it's, it's gone from a trickle to a flood. A guy goes down, you know, Corey Joseph and Tristan Thompson go down and play at the University of Texas, and then they go into the NBA and they come back in the summer and, and guys play summer ball with them. And, oh, where'd you go to college? And, you know, do you know anybody there? And the coaching gets better. And, and it's really, it, it's really exploded. Canada has more NBA players than any country in the world other than the United States. I think there were 18 this past year or something like that. Yeah. And there are more coming. Um, you know, Josh Primo was a first round pick this year and there's some Canada just won bronze in the U19 like there there's there's so many more coming so basketball is tremendous it's it's funny if you look across Canada, the Blue Jays would have more fans than the Raptors, the Blue Jays are a coast to coast draw. The Raptors, it's a little more focused in Toronto. They do have fans across the country, but I would say a higher percentage of Raptor fans are from Toronto. But Raptor crowds in Toronto are great. They are young and diverse and lively and loud, whereas a hockey crowd, a Maple Leaf crowd up here is older and sits on their hands a little bit more. Right. Um, basketball's, uh, it's its the cool sport up here right yeah. now. It really is. And uh, and I think, you know, the, the championship put it over the top, but it, it had started a long time before that. Yeah, it's good seeing basketball spread into obviously it was in Canada, more Canadian players having impact and even outside of Canada, countries like Slovenia, that's where Luke is from, right? Slovenia yes. um, and, and other European countries. So it is growing, becoming more global. So that's that's awesome to see. 
One more uh, question around college basketball. So we're seeing the G League Ignite team, and there's a new thing called Overtime um, Overtime League, which is basically where high schoolers go to – they can get paid and they work on their skills, and then they go into the NBA a couple years later. So they could be 16, 17, 18 years old. G League Ignite is more graduate from high school. You go there, you can get paid, and, uh, and then go to the NBA the next year. Um, an unforeseen consequence, I think, of NIL rules and athletes being able to be paid in college is those options don't look as bright and as great when you get paid going to college. Um, we're seeing football players getting paid a ton. You got to assume Duke, Kansas players are going to be paid a good amount, too. I'm not sure how it's going to um, compare to the G League in overtime. But do you, do you see the G League Ignite team in overtime and these other options as viable competition to college basketball? I think to a small number of players they are, but anybody who's good enough to go to the G League Ignite or Overtime Elite, like you said, is good enough, I think, to do pretty well in college at Kansas right. or Kentucky or Carolina or Duke or wherever it is. You know, they can go out and, and, and market their own name, image, and likeness. They can go sign autograph. They can, you know, they can do whatever they want right now. So, um, and, and I'm not an expert on it. I haven't done as much reading as I will have done by the time the season starts. I'm still in baseball mode right now. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, I think it's a viable alternative for a small number of players. I, I don't think it's going to, um, you know, irreparably harm college basketball. But I think I think college athletics and, and in this case, specifically basketball needed to have something done in order to give people a reason to to come. Like, uh, again, a lot of these great kids, the kids who know they're going out after a year. Uh, they know they're not getting a degree, at least in the moment. They can always go back and finish their degree later. I don't know how many of them do, but I think it comes down to what do you think is better for your future? Do you want to get into a pro-style environment right away where you're coached by somebody with professional experience, or do you want to go to Kansas and play for Bill Self or John Calipari and play for um, uh, to Kentucky and play for John Calipari. And then you're part of a community of fraternity for the rest of your life. You really are. Right. Even if you only played one year in Kansas, you're a Jayhawk for life. You can go back there in the summers and you can play and, and you know, you're, you're part of something really, really special. You're not going to have that with G league or overtime elite. Now, if you're just, I, I, I got to do what's best for my future. Maybe you go there, but I, but I, you know, if you get great, you can get a great coaching in, in college basketball as well. You can play on national TV. You can play in front of a full house. You can play in the NCAA tournament. You can win a championship. Those are things the, the other places can't give you. So um, I think some kids will opt for it. We've already seen that some have, but I, I, I don't think it's going to take all the top kids out of college basketball. Right. And it certainly helps for them if you're looking for the G League Ignite side, Jalen Green goes second overall. Jonathan Kaminga goes seventh. So these kids in high school, they're seeing, okay, you can, you're not going to be on TV and stuff, but they're still NBA scouts, obviously watching these games and you still have the yeah, ability to go, to go number yeah. one overall and stuff like that. Um, okay, so I'm a big Virginia basketball fan. I got my J.R. Reynolds jersey. He was on the, the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you remember him. I think he graduated right before you started doing college basketball games, I think about 15 years ago. But... UVA gets a lot of heat. Uh, people don't like watching their games, defensive style, all that stuff. When you see a Virginia game on the schedule that you have to call or just on TV when you're relaxing at home, are you excited? Do you appreciate the defense? Or are you like, oh, this is going to be two hours of, you know, 56 to, to 52 uh, type game? I do appreciate the defense and I, I appreciate the in incredible program that 
that Tony Bennett has built. I mean, it is, it's been one of the elite programs in the country, obviously, over the last, whatever, eight, seven, eight, 10 years. So um, it's, it's different than doing a Carolina game. You know, it's yeah. a whole different pace. And, and what's well, funny when you do a Carolina, Virginia game, Virginia can make Carolina play slowly more than Carolina can make Virginia right. play quickly, right? And then that's just the way it's always been. Um, I have as much appreciation as you can have for the program. Um, and, and I, I think he's, I, I think Tony's brilliant at, at what he's doing. I mean, I mean, he's getting the kind of kids he can get and to play the kind of style, you know, he's getting a certain kind of kid who's willing to play a certain kind of style. Um, and a lot of them have gone on to success in the NBA. I don't think it's really hurting them. Like it, it's, it's easy to see if this team has this many possessions a game and that team has that many possessions a game that his 13 points per game might be 17 points per game right. if he played on that team. Right. So, you know, NBA scouts and, and GMs are plenty smart enough to figure that out. So no, I never go Oh man, a Virginia game. I, I don't do that. Like there are some games uh, I'll be honest with you. If it's two really upbeat teams, I'm all in favor of an 88 to 86 game. So um, but Virginia's, uh, with rare exceptions, they've never been poor offensively. They're a good offensive team, very good offensive team at times. They just play um, uh, at a much different pace. And, and it's funny you say two hours. Virginia games are usually like an hour and 40 minutes, right? Because right. <laughs> the clock just keeps on running. They don't foul much. Um, there aren't that, that many turnovers. Like it, it's almost like it's running time in a Virginia game. <laughs> so we know if it's a Virginia Syracuse game with Syracuse's zone too, that clock just keeps moving. It's not like just that we're trying to get out of there quicker, but no, I, I Virginia is, is unique, but I don't look at them more or less favorably than any other, you know, top tier team that I cover. Right. That's a good point about the time of the game. I think announcers should be more favorable to Virginia because it's less, less amount of work. You get out of there in hour 45 and, and you're back home in, in uh, two hours. Um, right. So let's shift to baseball. The big game in baseball last week was the field of dreams game in Iowa and uh, I'm assuming you watched it or saw some clips of it at least. When you were watching it, were you getting the itch to send an email to you know, a boss at ESPN saying, man, this looks cool. I really want to call one of these games. Um, is that something you would want to do? Was, did that look appealing? Oh, it looked great. So I, I didn't get a chance to see that much of it. I had a Blue Jay game that night. Uh, it was a West Coast game. So I think the Field of Dream game, Dreams game started at 7 Eastern, I believe. And yeah. ours was at 10 Eastern. So I was in the studio kind of prepping and all that. But um it looked great um i didn't send an email to my boss it was a fox game right so fox has the rights to that right when i had sunday night baseball we did a couple of those i did a game at fort bragg we did a military game and i did a game in williamsport it was kind of the the major league little league classic that we that, did yep. uh which was that was that was a lot of fun i really really enjoyed that one um but i, I thought it looked great i'm i'm a total total sucker for field of dreams um, and, and I know people will argue like crazy, and that's what's great. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but it is my favorite baseball movie. Uh, love Bull Durham, love The Natural, all that stuff, but I'm a total sucker for Field of Dreams. So, you know, seeing them walk out of the corn and all that, even though it wasn't actually on the same field, it was adjacent to the field where the right. movie was filmed, whatever, but um, I thought it looked great. And then, of course, the game was fantastic, uh, you know, with the Yankees coming back and then the White Sox walking it off. And I guess it'll be the Cubs and Reds doing it next year. Um, and, and I think it's good. This is good for baseball. Uh, it, it's good to do different kinds of things. I think there are a number of other things that could be done as well, taking games to different places and they've done that. But uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great. And anything that promotes the sport to, uh, to a new audience is good by me. Yeah, it was cool. It was, it was 
funny seeing Tom Verducci going all out. He was a sideline reporter and he had like yeah. the, the uh, top hat looking old school, like reporter yeah. type guy. That was cool. Um, so speaking of like cool, like events, is there an event or a sport that you haven't done that you would really want to do? Maybe it's something like the winter classic. I don't know if you've done any hockey, but something along those lines, something different that you haven't done that you'd like to do. Yeah, I used to do hockey up here in Canada for about five, six years back in the 90s. Uh, before I kind of really got into college basketball in the winter, hockey was kind of my winter thing along with the Blue Jays back at the beginning of my career. Um, you know, there are some things, uh, again, not working for uh, CBS, you know, but I, I would have loved to have done Final Fours, obviously. You know, I, uh, we do the whole regular, Vital and I, and now Billis and I, we do the whole regular season. I'd love to do the tournament, but um, you know that's not uh, in the cards. I, I, I used to kind of really want to do swimming at the Olympics. That was just kind of this little bucket list thing I, I thought I would want to do. I never did it, but I just did basketball at the Olympics, which was, which was really fun. And I hope to do it again um, when the Olympics are in Paris in three years. But um, I would say just things like that. I, I mean, I grew up as kind of a four sport kid, uh, basketball, baseball, hockey, football, loved all four just as easily could have wound up doing hockey and football as, as, as basketball and baseball. It's just, these were the doors that opened to me. So, um, I, I, I spent a lot more time being grateful for what I have done than thinking about what I haven't done. I, I think I've been like 10 out of 10 lucky in my career. So, um, if they just keep letting me do baseball and basketball for a few more years, uh, they won't get a peep out of me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I think I know this, this is, not plausible. I think networks should work out some sort of like one day contract where it's like you take a great, great um, booth like you and Jay or Dick and you do, you know, a, a game or two in the NCAA tournament. But that probably would never happen, um, yeah. you know, working between networks. But uh, we can yeah. always hope. So let's talk about the AL East, your Toronto Blue Jays. They're in fourth place, but they're a pretty good team, 63 and 55. They would actually be tied for first in the NL East. I'm a Mets fan, so I'm follow the NL East. So pretty good team. It's a tough division. Nine games back, four games back in the wild card. Vlagarel Jr. has been amazing. Second in home runs, hitting for average too. The so I was looking through the stats. The one weak statistic for them has been defense, and I think they're 25th in defensive like air percentage. But they're you know pretty decent starting pitching through the board. Um, is that when you're watching these games through the course of the season, is the fielding, is that something that sticks out to you as the main pullback for this team? It has at times. It's been okay, actually, the last three months or so. It's really the bullpen that's been the biggest problem for them. They've blown a ton of games. I think their record in one-run games is like 8-14 and 14 or something like that, and they've blown a ton of leads after the sixth inning. They've just had a crazy number of injuries in the bullpen, and some of the guys they brought in haven't been able to do the job well enough. So, you know, you look at the team with – Vladdy having the kind of year that he is. Bo Bichette was an all-star. Teoscar Hernandez was an all-star. George Springer's George Springer, although he just sprained his knee and might be out the rest of the season. Marcus Simeon was an all-star. Their rotation's pretty good. They should have a better record than they do. They, not that they'd be in first place, but I think they should be ahead of the Yankees and Red Sox, which would put them in a wild-card spot. So it, <coughs> excuse me, it's been a, a very exciting season, but it's also been a little bit frustrating for the fan base, I think, because... Um, you know, their run differential is like plus 120 or something like that. And they're only it's eight six, games. Six best in the MLB. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, they 
they should be four, five, six games better than they are. They, right. they should be in a playoff spot. And now they're four out, as you said, with I think 44 games to go in the season. So it's very exciting and a little bit frustrating um, all at the same time. And, you know, this is, it seems like they've been around forever, but for Guerrero and Bichette, this is their first full season in the big leagues. They came up midway through 2019. Obviously last year was a shortened season. And, and they've kind of cooled off, uh, especially in the power department the last couple of weeks. Bo's been battling an injury as well, but playing through it. You know, so you wonder if there's some fatigue setting in. So it, it, it's a very good team. It's got a lot of young players. They're going to be a better team. Um, I, I don't know if they're good enough to make the playoffs this year, though. And that, it would be wonderful if they did. It would be a huge step in the, in the right direction for them to make the playoffs um, this year. If not, though, uh, you know, they've got some contracts coming off the books. And I think they'll go out and do and try to make some trades and sign some free agents and, and get after it again next year. But it should be a fun few years coming up in Toronto. Losing games with your bullpen, giving up runs late is, is one of the worst ways to, to lose games, especially when you have a good team. Um, and Vlad Guerrero Jr., it's really rare you see a son kind of step up and be just as good as his dad was. If his dad was a great player, just as good and, and almost be better than him this early on in the season. Okay, so last MLB thing. If you're the MLB commissioner, you know, everyone talks about how we would fix baseball. They've done a couple things where you got to leave a reliever in for three hitters. You have to, uh, the extra innings, you got a man on second in the 10th inning. Is there anything that hasn't been done that you think would be a good move, whether it's changing the extra innings, something with draft picks, anything uh, that comes to mind for you? I just want to see a, a little more action in the game. You know, the game over the last 10 years or so, um, it's become more about home runs and strikeouts. And, and I think speed and defense are very exciting parts of the game, but they're they're not as important now. They, you don't see them on display as often as you see power hitting and power pitching. Now, how do you do that? I don't know, um, but I, I'd like to see the ball in play more, so a little bit more action in the game, and I'd like to see the time of game down too. And that's not so I can, you know, get back to my hotel room or my house any earlier. It, it's I just want younger fans to keep loving the game, and there are so many different things for fans to do these days that a three and a half hour game for a nine inning game to me is 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 not helping the product. So I struggle with the pitch clock, um, you know, but. There was a time in basketball, there was no shot clock and right. we're all fine with it. Now, baseball is a different thing. It's supposed to be a timeless game, the only sport with no clock, et cetera. But uh, I wonder if it's if it's time to consider something like that. I, I think you can play a game in two and a half, 245, no problem. And I think ratings would be up and attendance would be up um, and that sort of thing. The other thing I would like, and again, it's complicated, but I'd like to see the the difference between the haves and the have-nots financially uh, get narrowed a bit. You know, right. baseball, uh, you know, the Yankees and Dodgers on one end and the whatever, the Marlins and, and Rays on the other end. And I know the Rays have been great. So mm -hmm. uh, I know there are ways around it, but it, it still seems to me like the financial gap between the haves and have-nots is a little bit too big. And I, I'd like to see something done maybe to narrow that a bit. What about the DH? Do you want to see a DH in the National League? Are you fine? I, I personally, I kind of, I kind of like the tradition of it, and I kind of like the strategy that goes in when you have a pitcher. And we saw with um, the Cardinals years ago with uh, Tony La Russa started hitting their pitcher eighth, so you have a, a better hitter right before you get to the top of the lineup. So I like that strategy. And going off what you said, when it's all home runs and strikeouts, it kind of limits 
the strategy, the bunting, the stealing, all that yeah. type of stuff. So what are your thoughts on a DH in the National League? I actually prefer the National League style of baseball um, for what you said. It, it, there, I think there's more thinking that goes into it. And, and it's not, it's, I, you know, I know pitchers aren't great hitters. It's not just that there's more, but there, there's more going on. You have to decide uh, when you take your pitcher out, who do you double switch with? If you're going to double switch that sort of thing. But I know we're never going national league style in both leagues. So if we're not doing that, then I would say go DH in both leagues. I don't like it the way that it is so with right. the differences in the two leagues um, and pitchers. I think pitchers either have to come up through the minors hitting or not. Um, it's, there's too much of a risk of injury hitting or running the yeah. bases or something like that for pitchers who don't do it very often. So at this point, I think just go DH both sides. And I think that's going to happen next year. Um, so last question, you've worked with a lot of talented, um, analysts beside you in the booth, Jay Billis, Joe Morgan on Sunday night baseball, Dick Vitale. Are there any behind the scenes stories or any funny things that have happened between you guys, um, with any of the people that you've worked with? Um, that you would like to tell? Well, I worked with Vital and still do, but I, I worked with Vital a ton for many, many, many years. So as you can imagine, there are <laughs> there are a ton of good stories. Um, you know, losing keys, getting lost, being late, uh, what, you know, exactly what you would think. He's, he's, he's an amazing, amazing guy. But, uh, you know, when you work with Dick, you got to keep an eye on him, right? You, right. you know, because you, <laughs> you never quite know where he's going to go. So I, I won't give any specifics, but exactly what you think he would be like off the air um, is, is what he is like um, off the air. But he's been wonderful to me and my family, and I've enjoyed every moment with it. And, and for me to have a chance to work with Dick, Jay, you mentioned Joe Morgan, um, uh, Oral Hershiser, Aaron Boone. Uh, you know, so many wonderful people um, that I've worked with. Uh, it's it's beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, you know, somebody like Aaron is my age, actually a little bit younger. But I, you know, to to work with Joe Morgan, who I watched play as a kid, to work with David Judd, to work with Tony Gwynn. I, I worked with Tony Gwynn for a couple of years. And, and I, you know, as a teenager, Tony Gwynn was already in the big leagues, watched him and just marveled at Ed what he did. You know, to be able to to spend a couple of years working with guys like that, um, is, uh, is, is pretty amazing. And it's, it's something I don't take for granted. Right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of legends have been in that booth next to you and, and final question slash request. I pointed out the J.R. Reynolds Jersey and I try and get some sort of piece of memorabilia or something like that, um, from somebody. So if you happen to be calling a Virginia basketball game in Charlottesville this coming year, what are the chances I could get like a signed play sheet or something like that, that I could uh, hang up on the wall behind me? Slim. <laughs> do you keep those? No. Okay. Uh, do I, uh, yeah, like the official game sheet? Uh, if, or or it could just be, or it could just be like notes of the, you know, halftime stats or something, something like that. Something that you used in the broadcast. Oh, that uh, with whose signature on it? Mine? Or so, it, or, the, or, or you want one of the players? Or the, no, or, no, your, yeah, from you. From you, oh, yeah. that I can do. Yeah, the halftime stats or the postgame stats they give us. Yeah, that I can do. That, okay. that that's an easy one. So I thought you wanted like the official game sheet with Tony Bennett's signature on it. That that I'm not. That oh I no, no, yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right, Dan Schulman, great play-by-play -play broadcaster from ESPN. Thank you so much for coming on. You got it.